0: Welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast for the 2nd of July with myself, Andres Funtanar, and my colleagues Harry Morgan, Peter White, and Simon Thompson. I just
1: thought the issue ran a wide gamut between politics, technology, big engineering projects, Shrewd analysis of, uh, I thought, in particular, Iran's energy transition and some political kind of shopmaking making at at the expense of Europe about its common agricultural policy. And we'll start on the first piece. Uh, The size of this dam, Andres, you you wrote the piece, I believe, at uh, China's by Hayton Hydro Power Station. 16 gigawatts, but each turbine, very, very large, breaking
0: records. Yeah, each each turbine is one gigawatt, and I, I th- I'm not sure what the previous record was. I know that the the Three Gorges Dam, which is still the largest overall hydropower station in the world, I, I know that had seven hundred megawatt generators, and they had to they had to develop some new materials as well, like uh, s- silicon steel sheets for this. Um, the picture of it was just just a
1: massive, and I, I I couldn't really work out how it worked uh, from looking at it. It didn't look like any uh, turbine I'd ever seen.
0: Well, uh, yeah, I, we have a picture of the runner. It's very big. I know that the generators themselves are like fifty meters tall, which is the that's the height of Gloucester Cathedral, actually, where I grew up. The, they weigh eight thousand tons, which is not quite as heavy as the cathedral, but um... <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I, it's a bit like wind farms saying we need bigger rotors. You know, the the truth about China is, um, I mean, this headline is is I don't know who's talked about a hydro revival. This is more of a Hydro continuation. In the last 20 years, China's built 22,000 dams and not all of them for Hydro. I remember seeing some kind of American thriller about how some Americans made tons and tons of money on the side by advising overseas governments on how to build dams. I thought, well, today, that would be a, they would be Chinese, those people, because nobody in America's built a dam for 20 years. And China has built all of its dams in the last 20 years, or most of them. They are now the world's experts and the best engineers around dams. And so when they they export these ideas on their Belt and Road Initiative, when they finally get around to looking at a map of Africa, they'll see, wow, we could sell them a lot of dams. Because when you think about it, the reason that no one's got uh, uh, any new dams in America is because of the trouble it caused with the environmental lobby when whole fish species were wiped out um, whenever they built a dam or, and whole towns, and uh, ecosystems of rare animals were wiped out and people just sent in up and prevented putting permit problems that stopped people building dams and then the engineering expertise slowly dissipates. Whereas in China, no one's got permit problems and neither, neither do they have in Africa or Southeast Asia.
2: So, do, you, do you think that that's something that could come further down the line? Though? I think as sort of the middle class in these countries grows and you start to see objection on on the grounds of these environmental issues, do you think that there's the potential for places like China uh, and sort of later later down the line Africa for for there to be this objection to hydropower to actually see the industry sort of slow down in these areas?
1: Well, I, I think that the idea of uh, China as a essentially controlled communist country isn't quite a correct one, and I think that complaint does bubble up from the uh, rank and file up towards uh, the political masters. And I think they do listen. And in fact, that's the only reason they've signed up to any of the climate change objectives is because they they actually have about 42,000 people a year dying through um, lung related diseases because they've got so much pollution. And I think they do listen. And I think they will listen again and permit problems will happen in China, which is why they'll export the technology to places that don't have permit problems. But I think that is 20 years down the track. Let's go on to um, the next piece, which is something we've been saying a lot about. I mean, and we didn't really put a figure on it, I, or did you, Harry, when you wrote uh, the Steel Report? Did you put a figure on stranded assets?
2: Uh, so we, did, we didn't We did actually put an exact figure on stranded assets in the report, no, because, I mean, this was something that, um, that Global Energy and have been working on for a while, and they've been, um, they approached... sort of whole steel transition in a very different way to us they actually looked at each individual steel plant looking at its individual characteristics very much looking at more looking at the the trajectories of the investment and what's going on in the future and how how that will be steered so this 70 billion uh, dollar risk that they came out this week is one that we personally, I don't personally believe, it is going to materialise. I think that the steel industry will be pragmatic enough to sort of cancel these projects ahead of their actual installation. But yeah, it did sort of feel a little bit like Sod's Law that literally as we released our steel report, another another sort of comparable report came out alongside it. But they are very much two separate things um, and address the steel industry in two. You know, years. they're they're really addressing the past. You're addressing the future. I mean,
1: I, I understand that, and I think that you know that they should be viewed side by side, not not
2: separately. Yeah, definitely. I think what, what was interesting was that they, they both, we both sort of addressed the fact that steel making emissions should fall sort of 90% through to 2050. I think we while well, we've outlined how that's going to happen, they've identified that it needs to happen. Um, so ours provides much more sort of a roadmap. The interesting thing is the sort of increase in demand and sort of the, the fact that scrap steel isn't going to be enough to decarbonise the industry means that we will need this primary production. The fact that there's these 42 sort of uh, steel plants in development now that um, use blast furnaces and bl- uh, basic oxygen furnaces. Despite the fact that we've actually got this massive overcapacity of steel already, I think a lot of these won't just just simply just won't get built and they'll wait for the commercialisation of these green technologies that we addressed through the poor and and so sort of the next five to ten years the actual transition will start.
1: But it does depend on everybody keeping their heads around carbon tax and keeping that you know that on the road and keep and europe being strong on carbon taxes because that's one of the things that is uppermost in the minds of the steel companies that if they're going to get carbon taxed out of existence they want to move
2: now and be ahead of the game yeah and, and i think the one thing that they're sort of daunted by is the fact that people are saying oh a whole industry can't transition in in twenty thirty years but the fact is it they've done it before i mean the transition from uh, the best of my approaches to open, uh, open hearths and took only sort of 30, 40 years. And then we had this transition away from that towards these basic oxygen furnishes. So I think when you've now got this Additional layer of pressure on the top due to sort of climate change, I think that will really accelerate this sort of 30-40-year transition, uh, which is more based around sort of the life cycle of these steel-making facilities down sort of 30-20 years. I think we'll see a lot of early retirements from plants. and I think a lot of these ones that are being proposed now just simply won't end up in existence. And... Like,
1: like a lot of the coal plants in places like uh, Vietnam and, and gas plants that are not materializing as well. because when it comes to final
2: investment decision, the numbers don't stack up uh, anymore. From when they were proposed. Yeah, I think oh. the one one thing we definitely can't be certain of, and I think that this is something that is a massive risk to the investors in these projects, is how quickly carbon taxes will rise. Putting money into a any heavy emitting plant, be that a gas-fired power station or a or a facility, if it's going to if it's going to emit carbon, you simply just don't know how much it's going to punish you. I mean, you couldn't you you wouldn't want to rule out that we'd have. Prices of per, sort of near sort of $500 per tonne of CO2 at some point in the future. So at that point, you're definitely not going to want to own anything that pumps that CO2 at all.
1: Yeah, and, and at some point, we're talking 2045, 2050, building anything that emits carbon in the future will be illegal to what they're talking about with steel. But the difference is we know the steel industry is aware of this and ready for it. We also know the gas industry
2: is not Yeah, I think so the interesting thing here as well is how sort of hydrogen ready these industries are. Um, It depends how you look at stranded assets, right, because obviously you've got uh, the actual the hole in the ground where the gas and the oil is itself and I think that's something that obviously you can't repurpose really. There's a really high risk of that becoming stranded but I think a lot of these companies potentially if they're investing in hydrogen ready gas turbines which I don't think a, a large percentage of them are that's probably the best way that they can hedge their bets but that's then a huge cost that they're taking on now. So I mean, either way, there's there's a heavy bill to pay, I think.
1: Andres, how's China going to get solar into homes?
0: Well, it seems like it it's actually already doing a decent job of it, um, but it it is helping it along with they cancelled direct subsidies for onshore wind, utility scale solar at the end of last year, but they're still continuing it for offshore wind and now domestic solar, especially. And they have a bunch of provinces. It, it seems to be much more about the provinces uh, these days with China, well, unless it was always that way. But I think we all expect the 14th five-year plan to be to have some big central initiative, and then they, they distributed it all to the provinces instead. And that's part of why it was so disappointing. But anyway, China actually installed 10 gigawatts of domestic rooftop solar. And you know, before I read that, I thought, well, about half of Chinese solar is on rooftops, but I didn't know how much was domestic versus commercial, and it turns out that it, it almost there was almost no rooftop um, until 2020, and then that year was equal to the past four years combined, even though the even though um, you know it wasn't a particularly outlandish year overall. And this year it should be more like 15 gigawatts. So yeah, they have a new sector, and that's happening. When, when do the um, subsidies stop? I think they stop this year, and they're also. About a third of the level that they were last year, so it's quite impressive that it's happening despite the reduction of subsidies and despite the um despite the slightly higher module prices right now for this year uh, although that that's not so relevant for for rooftop so um i guess it's not so
1: relevant sort of, i mean it's not only it's only what fifteen percent of the total system costs for even utilities isn't it
0: well i think uh i think for a like a really cheap indian project the module cost is actually like 45 percent or or something in so some yeah
1: but i think you know you're, you're mistaking uh, sort of rural land prices and employment costs um in india uh and letting that you know and cost of finance and you're letting that all kind of play havoc with the numbers i think in india india is a special case here china's becoming more like a normal case oh, i see so when they stop subsidizing it next year Will we
0: stop seeing this? No, I don't think so. You know, every single year you have the SNEC exhibition and they show off uh, modules that are another percentage point efficiency. They're more powerful, uh, although I suppose you don't want the biggest ones for a, a rooftop installation because they're actually too heavy to put in place easily in, in some cases yeah and they have uh, they even have some um some cadmium telluride it 's not just america's first solar that has that and and that can be very convenient for rooftops because it's thin film and they have some perovskites going on some tandems I think it'll maybe next year it will be fifteen gigawatts like it is probably going to be this year yeah that's something of a of a intuitive leap because
1: we don't know. How much of the funding for this is coming purely because the subsidies are still there and they, and they want to use up, them up? Well, it, get, it's get a um, piece of them.
0: I think the subsidy is $4.6 per megawatt hour. And I think these, um, but all of these provincial initiatives to, are supposed to um, cover the whole five-year plan period that we just entered into.
1: OK, so um, I looked at another battery startup, a company called Texel. And it put out a simple press release this week. Nothing too wonderful. It, took, it talked about the Arizona State University writing a report on whether or not its aluminium hydride heat storage battery made any sense, and if so, in which markets, and if so, at what price. You know, you go back in time, you find that that contract was signed in November, and they announced that this report would come out. this reports come out, and all it really says we, we're not allowed a copy of the report is it gives. A levelized cost of storage for a, um, a battery based on heat which again we, we've already seen one of these uh, within a venue where you have a hydrogen source and um, a metal source but you combine them in a, a reaction uh, up at 800 degrees or, or rather you uncombine them and store them separately and, and that's your storage and then when you want them the energy again you warm up the hydrogen make it invade the space the um the aluminiums in and um, you create more aluminium hydride and uh, the 800 degrees is reproduced so it's it's thermal storage but they've also uh, bought rights to uh, some time ago two or three years ago um, to the um, to one of the most efficient Stirling uh, engines which will turn that heat um, back into electricity so I mean it's a uh, claiming that it's half the uh, levelised cost of storage of lithium-ion, um, or that it will be when they're in manufacturing volumes, and that they can get much, much lower than that eventually. It's always interesting to see these, but that, again, it's almost a 10-year story from um, people doing work uh, at the Savannah River National Laboratory in the US, of well, the Department of Energy Labs, in around 2012, and then um, and then selling off the rights to it. So, I mean, it's it's almost 10 years ago. that This could have been done 10 years ago. Um, it's just this guy in Sweden who's putting his kind of wealth and uh, brains behind it and trying to make it happen. And I don't know if it'll happen. Um, he's trying to raise a billion euros for a factory in Europe and another billion for a factory in America. And that, that that's not a large amount of money when you consider what people are spending to build lithium-ion battery factories. We've got it clearly up against that that. Uh, massive momentum of lithium-ion batteries that are going into gigafactories all over the world where a, a couple of hundred billion dollars are chasing more gigafactories and more development for EVs, um, whereas this is pointed at um, at grid storage. So, you know, they're claiming an energy density above lithium-ion, uh, and, and it, 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 a lot of this technology is understood. I mean, people have stored hydrogen inside metal hydrides, for fuel cells in the past, as an efficient way of storing hydrogen, so it's it's kind of understood technology. I, they they want they made me say almost sign a document that said this is not for cars because they say that whenever you mention it's for cars or it could be used in cars or it has been used in cars, investors run for the hills. So uh, I I thought I'd explain that. Okay, we'll see we'll see if they get funded. Um, Harry, yeah, another um, green hydrogen company uh, coming along, aiming for twenty twenty four parity pricing with um, blue hydrogen.
2: Hydrogen Systems Australia, yeah, so it's um, it's it's, a, it's one of these companies that is keeping its cars pretty close to its chest. I mean, what we know about it uh, so far is that yeah, they're aiming for one one 50 per kilogram hydrogen with its first product on the market in twenty twenty four, which for context is about a third of the cost we've got today. Um, but it's, it's similar to the cost that we're seeing from some of the big boys like Nell and ITM Power, who are trying to achieve that through these sort of gigafactories approach, basically. Rather than that, though, a system Australia is trying to do this through a reduction of the capital cost of the actual system itself, uh, and through efficiency improvement. So the way they're doing this is using a plasma, uh, so which is basically ionized matter, I mean, you can see it in lightning, um, and often the sun is a really good example. And inside sort of a plasma chamber, they'll use electric power at uh, different frequencies, basically, to, to liberate the hydrogen and the oxygen molecules. So it will be these frequencies that do the sort of heavy lifting rather than the actual power itself. So it's in theory, sort of a less brute force method. I mean, we've seen it used before. Uh, we've seen it proposed before anyway. Um, sort of various combinations, often using fossils uh, for hydrogen production. But the uh, Hydrogen Systems Australia are trying to do it with uh, electricity, electricity in essentially an electrolyzer unit. What's... It's interesting about the sort of production is it's normally used for small scale units, um, and that's what uh, HSA are trying to do. They're not going to try and displace NEL and ITM in these massive hydrogen projects uh, like the sort of 45 gigawatt uh, one we saw in Kazakhstan announced this week. But they're going to, yeah, target sort of small, sort of modular, small modular. Uh, Sites so potentially sort of on the on the site of the demand itself, so it'd be where you, sort of on the site of actually hydrogen refueling stations would be one example. and also they're not going to try and build it themselves. they're going to try and license their technology technology to other manufacturers. Uh, they're claim they're already in discussions with some of them and that actually in sort of the existing electrolyzer supply chain, you only really need to change sort of 10% of the actual production method. So it's not going to be a massive shift suddenly if this technology really does emerge. And I mean, we can't be sure that it will emerge. I think, and what we say right at the start of the article is that there's so many companies now that say this 2024 cost parity is, is achievable in their eyes, that no matter if 90% of them fail, there's at least one will, and we will have this sort of hydrogen economy emerging from then.